when I read the longitudinal study that Harvard University has been doing for almost eight decades, when I was reading the results in that, that's like, oh my gosh, that seriously is the truth. Happier people achieve more goals. As soon as you realize that your brain is making those kind of negative comments, stop and think about something else. And if you can't think about something else, then sing a song because you can't think negative thoughts about yourself while you're singing a song. Welcome to the Unlocking Happiness Podcast. I'm Amy Dix, international best-selling author, speaker, and founder of Choose Happy. Collectively, our community builds a better world. I believe life is made up of moments. We have short moments, long moments, good moments, and bad moments. We make sure that all of your life moments are filled with meaning and joy. Stick around to the end of the show. We'll reveal how you can be our next guest on the internet's happiest podcast. Now let's unlock happiness. Welcome to Unlocking Happiness show. Sandy Weaver, author of Happy Vet, Happy Pet, and all around just a beautiful happiness advocate in this world. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Which we need more of. We need more Sandy Weavers and happiness advocates in this world. So really excited to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. One of the things that I heard in your video that was said is happiness is job one. And what a like stance to take. Why is it that you feel so strongly about making happiness job one? Because we're in charge of our own happiness. Happy, and first of all, Amy Dix, it takes, it takes a happiness expert to know a happiness <laughs> expert and somebody who spreads happiness. So thank you for the work that you do. Happiness is an inside job. Happiness is job one. Happiness is foundational. And happiness is one of those things that people think just kind of happens to them. Mm. And you and I both know that is not true. Happiness is a mindset. Happiness is a muscle and we can build that muscle. Happiness is job one came about when I read the longitudinal study that Harvard University has been doing for almost eight decades. When I was reading the results in that, that's like, oh my gosh, that seriously is the truth. Happier people achieve more goals. Happier people are successful. They're not happier because they've had success. They are successful because they are happier. And yes, there are glass half empty people and glass half full people. And yes, they're probably born that way. Neuroscience research shows that there is a happiness gene. About half the planet's population has it. The other half doesn't. No worries. There are tools you can use to make yourself happier. And I teach those in the Happiness is Job One program. So, yeah. Love it. And I think, you know, not enough people know that little stat about like the negativity bias factor and just how we, for the majority of people, you say half, the majority of people like are born to be negative people. Like we just are born that way, but you're right. Like there are things that we can do to help negate that. So you and I both work in neuroscience, positive psychology. I mean, I can't think of a better field to work in, (laughs) right? but I want to talk about this because understanding the science behind happiness, I think is key because a lot of people just think, oh, 
that Sandy, like she's just woo woo. She's just oh so happy all the time. Like I can't stand her. Right. But who is she to say like happiness is a choice? Who is she to say that happiness is job one? But really there is science to back this up. So I want to talk about that. When you speak on happiness, and you talk about being a happier being, and you have studied neuroplasticity, neuroscience for, I think I heard somewhere like over a decade. So you are an expert in this. What do we need to know about the science behind happiness? Well, there's a lot of things. And I want to clear up a little bit of confusion that apparently I caused. There's a difference between the brain's negativity bias and the happiness gene. Got you. The happiness gene attenuates our negative negativity bias, which pretty much 100% of human brains have. That's yes. how we survived as a species. Caveman and cavewoman going for a cave walk would not have lived to make cave babies if they weren't scared <laughs> of the saber-toothed tiger. And That's so right. a twig snapping would send them up a tree. That's how we're here. We have a negativity bias. We have this little tiny piece of our brain. It's actually two pieces. It's called the amygdala. And it's where our fear lives. It's where fight or flight lives. And it has about a second and a half to three seconds, depending on the person, head start over our prefrontal lobe, which is where our sensibilities live. You know, once they've finished developing in our middle to late 20s. (laughs) So yeah, it's chemical, it's hormonal, but it's also a physical construct of the brain. It is how we're designed. It's how we lived as a species. We have to be negative to start with And we can teach our brain to be much more positive because clearly there are no saber-toothed tigers chasing (laughs) us. We don't really need that anymore because we don't need the fight or flight just because somebody walks in behind us and startles us. We don't need it. Yeah. I think, you know, when it comes to talking about happiness, I think one of the key things and what you, you just said is to address positivity because within positivity, you create happiness. So talk to us a little bit about like, let's keep talking about the brain a little bit. And you said something that kind of just blew my mind, which was developing part of our brain develops in our mid twenties or our late twenties. The prefrontal lobe. Yeah. Okay. So the prefrontal lobe develops in our, correct me, was it mid twenties or Let's just say in our 20s. It's physically there. It's physically there. (laughs) Correct. You know how maybe I remember back to when I was late teens, early 20s. I did not make the best decisions of my life. It's the decision making. It's the discernment that is not fully there until you're in your middle 20s. Sometimes individuals late 20s. Sometimes people never get it. Oh, okay. So what do we need to do in order to develop it? I think it's just have life experience. So that little live and learn thing, I think it would be really good for teenagers if and and early 20s, if they would listen, you know, instead of going, all right, boomer, okay, boomer, you know, <laughs> they would actually listen to cooler heads, grayer heads, whatever, and just just really learn from other people's mistakes watch what other pe- what happens to other people. So when, you know, if you're out with your friends and everybody says, oh, we're going to swing on this rope swing and it's going to be lots of fun and we're going to just drop right over the cliff and there's a river down there and it's deep enough. And you don't want to be the first one to do that. <laughs> Pretty much watch and see what your friends do. You know, that risk-taking behavior that is so common in teenagers and early 20s happens because the prefrontal cortex hasn't finished making all the connections yet. And so 
you know, when we're in that age group, we take more risks. And sadly, some of those risks don't work out very well. (laughs) Learning from the mistakes of others is a really good thing to do. Yes. You can roll your eyes and say, okay, boomer, but take in what they just told you. Right. They might know something. It's interesting to me along these lines of development in our 20s. Because if I look at like the nerdy marketer in me loves to look at stats, right? right? So as I look at like stats on what we did when I had the company, the Positive Life Company, and now Choose Happy, and who kind of resonates with the message, who who's within, you know, kind of like our tribe, it's really like this 35 to 65-year-old age group. And that is true. That has been true and held true for the most part. That's the majority has held true through different projects that I've done on happiness. And so it really, and it's interesting because I was thinking about this this morning when I was exercising and I was like, man, it's interesting. Like why 35? Like at some point do we go, okay, this is important. And we didn't think it was important before, but if you look at the science and kind of what you're telling us, that may be the the actual science behind why it's kind of within that age group. I think that's a really good observation. I don't know any studies that prove that out, but it does make sense, doesn't it? Yeah, it does make sense. (laughs) We won't state it as fact, but it does make a lot of sense. (laughs) So, okay. So you work primarily in kind of in the veterinarian pet owner world. And so, you know, one of the things that I found really interesting on your website that I did not know was that veterinarians have a, they're more prone to suicide than, you know, maybe some other professions out there. And I don't, maybe you have an actual stat to go along with that, but why did you kind of get into that world? Oh, thank you for asking it that way. For my whole adult life, my avocation has been dog sports. I have Siberian Huskies, though right now it's singular. I just have one. And she may join us because she's in the room. Um, <laughs> I'd love it if she did. I'm she a might. dog lover. <laughs> we could have a little video bomb from Casey. <laughs> so dog sports are my avocation. I do. I have been doing confirmation, which if you think Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show, that's confirmation training and showing. And I'm a confirmation judge with the AKC. So I judge a bunch of different breeds. And I love doing the other things too. And so through the years, it's always been important to me to have a good relationship with my veterinarian because, you know, I I want them to partner with me to have a dog that's really physically at its optimal. And, you know, occasionally if I decide to breed a litter, I need a veterinarian that I can work with on that. So I've always had, I've been blessed with really good relationships with my veterinarians and anecdotally in the veterinary field, it's been known for decades that veterinarians do seem to have a problem with suicide. So the Centers for Disease Control several years ago decided they would study it. And they looked at veterinary suicides over the span of 35, 37 years. I don't remember the exact number of years. And they looked at the veterinary deaths. Every veterinarian that died They went in and they, as if they could get the actual death certificate, they did. If they could find the news stories, they did. But they looked and did the investigation and realized that what had been anecdotally believed that veterinarians have a high rate of suicide was in fact very true. Male veterinarians are 2.1 times more likely than their general population peers to complete a suicide. And female veterinarians are 3.5 times more likely. 
And then the next stat just was like a gut punch to everybody who owns a pet. 75% of the veterinary suicides are in small animal practices. That's Mm. pets. That's cats, dogs, pocket pets, birds. Yeah, that's our veterinarians. So, so I, I started looking and digging into what it was and, and digging into the research that's been done. And there have been several pretty good studies done, including a study that was done in the early 2000s called the mega study. And some changes have been made based on that mega study, including business courses in veterinary um, veterinary colleges so that veterinarians don't come out just really prepared to take care of the animals and with no business sense at all, right. because the business is a big driver, a big stress driver. That's but right. Honestly, we pet owners cause a lot of stress for our veterinarians without meaning to, and without knowing that we did it. And so I spend a lot of time when I work with a dog club, I work with dog, I work with veterinary teams and I work with dog people. And when I work with the dog people, with dog clubs, with dog groups, with training groups, I always spend time explaining to them what we do that steps all over the toes and the hearts of the people that we count on to care for our animals. And that education piece is very near and dear to my heart. So I, I absolutely love this. And I got the chills a couple of times when you were talking <laughs> and maybe it's the dog lover in me, but it makes me w- want to really wonder, like, what can we do as pet owners in order to improve this situation for our vets that we do? I mean, everyone that I talk to that owns a pet, like everyone says that they have the best vet, right? No, my vet's the best. No, mine is. No, mine loves, you know, pets or whatever it is. So right. how can we, if we love our vets that much, how can we do a better job to support them? Well, that's rule number three, actually. So we're going to jump to rule number three. Tell them. Tell them. them. Every now and then send them a thank you note or take a present by. This was not planned, but I did um, an hour ago run by my veterinarian's office because two bracelets that I got in that are they're so cute. They look like this one. I keep getting them and giving them away. They look exactly like this bracelet, except instead yes. of a little sparkly bead here, there's uh-huh. a paw print. Oh, I love it. And the bracelet is called Paws. And I got one for my veterinarian and for her head technician because I just recently put down a 15 and a half year old dog. It was time. It was it was time. It was hard. And thankfully, she didn't make my veterinarian do it. She needed help in the middle of the night. So I took her to the emergency vet. But Anna and Rebecca had been part of Duffy's life for her entire life. So I wrote them, going to get all teared up. Sorry. Um, I wrote them thank you notes explaining the difference that they had had made in Duffy's life and helping her live 15 and a half years and took them a bracelet. So I did that this morning. Now it's a little thing for me to do. And they're probably not going to care about the bracelet. To be perfectly honest, (laughs) I don't think it's either one of their taste. They're probably not going to care about the bracelet (laughs) at all. They're going to care about the note. But the bracelet was in there because I think they're dang cute. So... (laughs) Oh, wow. You no, you got teary eyed. I got teary eyed. There is. I mean, I believe that our pets are our sons and daughters. (laughs) At least that's how I treat mine. Yeah. And I also had a little Yorkie. Her name was Ellie May, had her for 16 years. And I'll just share this story with you. We took her in, and this was a few years ago now, but took her in. I thought she was like in her last minutes of life at the, at the time. I mean, she was just 
just showing some odd signs and took her in and our vet love him. His name is Dr. Cole. I'll just give him a shout out. His name's Dr. Yeah, Dr. Cole, Cole. Jacksonville. Yeah. Jacksonville beach, Florida. And such an amazing, not only vet, but just an individual, you know, you can just feel it. And he gave her like a hydration pack and I don't know, did some other things. Like I don't even remember now because that wasn't, you know, in my right. realm of thinking at that moment Right. and kind of sent us home. And Ellie Mae lived, I want to say 16 months after that moment. And when it was time, and then it was, became very obvious it was time. He was so loving, so caring. And after it was all done, asked him, do you remember when, when I came in and thought she was on her last moments? And he said, he goes, yeah, I didn't give her more than two weeks at that point. And wow. she lived 16 months. Wow. But, you know, he never said anything. He never said like, you probably only have two weeks. And he calls her like his miracle dog. And even to this day, and then when I got Sadie Mae, you know, brought her in as a puppy. And I was just like, do you remember me? Like, do you remember Ellie Mae? And he's like, I will never forget that dog. And to me, he's a genius at what he does anyway. Like, I just think that, you know, vets are doctors. So they're very smart They're, But to me, what makes it so much more special is the fact that he cared and the fact that, you know, he remembered. And now when I take Sadie May in, he gets on the floor with Sadie. Like, I don't even think Sadie ever even goes on the table. (laughs) You know, he's just one of those vets. And that's what I love about him is like his true love and care for Sadie May. And so this is so interesting to me. And now I'm going to go by and drop off a thank you note and do something for them. So that was rule number three. And I feel like, I feel like that is just enough to be impactful. So what is rule number one? How many rules are there? There are three rules. Okay. Can I, can we go with your doctor, your story about your doctor for a moment before I get to the other two rules? Do you mind? Yeah. Because I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I was crying with Duffy and then I started crying with Ellie Mae. (laughs) I'm just going to sit here and be a teary mess. (laughs) Um, Veterinarians care. That's who they are. That's right. They get into the profession and it is, as you said, it's a profession. They are doctors. They are professionals. They aren't just, you know, it's not a transactional thing. And so that's part of the problem. People come in and they're, it's like they're shopping at Walmart. You know, they're, they're dropping their dog off and picking their dog up and complaining that it's cost too much money. That's not the relationship that veterinarians want to have. First of all, getting into vet school is harder than getting into medical school because there are fewer vet schools than there are medical schools. And there are probably just as many people who want to be veterinarians as want to be human doctors. Okay. So veterinarians typically know by the time they're 12 years old that they want to be a veterinarian. This is a call from a very young age. And even just the tiniest bit of research or talking to their guidance counselor at school or to their parents and saying, I want to be a veterinarian, even the tiniest bit of research will show them that the competition just to get into vet school is ridiculously high. Wow. So they've got to start right then getting straight A's, 
spending their after-school time and spending their summer vacations either interning at a veterinary hospital or volunteering at a shelter and really being driven to learn all about animals, doing as much as they can with animals, doing as much extracurricular stuff, easy for (laughs) me to say, so that they can have that on their entrance paperwork so they can say, please accept me, see how dedicated I've been. So they have to be really driven, really perfectionist with themselves I mean, an A minus is not going to work. It's got to be straight A's and A pluses need to be in there. And oh, by the way, you know, college prep courses, advanced placement courses, as much early work as they can possibly get done, really driven and focused and caring about animals. They get into this because they want to help animals. Mm -hmm. They come out of vet school, sometimes with upwards of half a million dollars in student loan debt. Wow. And they make half what a human doctor does when they come out. Mm. Human doctors, human medicine doctors, when they come out of medical school, when they're fresh out of school, $180,000 is the average the last time that that was taken. I think that's a 2018 figure. And for veterinarians, it's uh, 92,000. So it takes them twice as long to retire the debt. And a lot of them come out with more debt than human medicine doctors do. Just because there aren't as many vet schools, they can charge more. Right. So they've got a lot of financial stress. They don't really want to run a business. And yet, right. <laughs> if, yeah, if they go into business for themselves, if they don't start off as an associate vet, if they you know, decide, well, I'm going to hang up my shingle and I'm going to be my one, one woman veterinary hospital. I'm Dr. Sandy Weaver, and I'm really not. Um, <laughs> Dr. Sandy Weaver veterinarian, here I am. Well, Dr. Sandy Weaver veterinarian needs a receptionist. Dr. Sandy Weaver veterinarian needs at least two technicians. And so you start right off, you've got to put a roof over your head. You've got to get all this equipment in that all that costs money. You've got to get a website. You've got to get, you know, the, all the people, the staff, you've got to get errors and omissions insurance. You've got to get insurance on the people that you've got in there because, you know, dogs and cats bite. And there's a <laughs> lot of that that happens. And so you've got to figure out what all the government regulations are. That stuff is, they don't ever want to do that. They got into this because they want to take care of animals. That's right. And so then they get to the point where they've spent all this money trying to become a veterinarian. And then they spend all this money trying to start their veterinary business. And then they are refereeing between spatting employees and trying to keep the hospital fully staffed and running. And they walk in the door and they just are thinking about the animals they're going to take care of that day. And the receptionist says, you know, we're out of toilet paper. Did you remember to stop and get some? That's not what they want to hear. High stress. So then they see their clients and their patients and the clients stand in the way of them being able to take proper care of their patients. Mm. Sometimes it's financial because the client just can't afford the treatment. And can you imagine how hard that would be? You go to school all that time, you know, you've got a great treatment for this animal and the client Mm. can't afford it affordability is a problem. Y'all, can I please just say, please get pet insurance, get pet (laughs) insurance. It is so inexpensive and it is the way to go because if your dog ever or cat ever needs an expensive treatment, you get to treat your animal because you've got the insurance for it. So figure out how to make it work in your budget, budget, get pet insurance. I certainly have it on my dog. Great advice. Yeah. And then, so then human beings are so non-compliant giving our own medications. So imagine how bad we are with our animals. We are very non-compliant 
Mm. We, you know, the, the first two times you try to give a pill to your dog and your dog won't take it and spits it out or even worse, a cat trying to pill a cat <laughs> or a lot of clients just give up. Mm. And so, and then they complain that their pet is not getting better. And the first question is, well, how's the medication going? Do you need some more medication? Are you, how are you giving the medication and are they tolerating that? Are they throwing it up? Well, no, I can't give it. They won't take it. They won't take it. I can't. Yeah. We have to take a little bit of responsibility here. So here is the veterinarian standing there with a client in front of them who is keeping them from being able to treat their patient, who is the one they really care about. And the client is the one who's helping them retire all that debt they have by paying the bill. Mm, You imagine how tough that conversation is to have several times a day. And then we go into that. Well, let's go back into neuroscience for a minute you know that the more often you say something, the more you believe it, right? So the more often veterinarians, and on average, they have the euthanasia conversation with somebody two times a week, the more often they say euthanasia is a gift, it's an end to pain and suffering, the more they believe it. And it's a very benign belief when they're talking about Fifi. And it is not a benign belief when they get themselves into a really stressed out corner because they are perfectionist They are very hard on themselves. They are driven and they are caring and they feel like a failure. Mm -hmm. They feel like an imposter. They feel like a failure. They don't know how to get out of the corner they've painted themselves in and they're not good at asking for help. And they know where the drug box is and they know how to deliver the drugs. There are very few veterinary suicide attempts. Wow, that is like so powerful in understanding like from the beginning to where it kind of ends up. And that is another thing I hadn't thought about. Like you just painted the whole picture from the beginning to the end. And, you know, when I first just thought like, oh, okay, so vets are more prone to suicide. But now when you put it in those terms, they have access to it, like front row access to it. That makes me incredibly sad. So what's rule number one that we can do as as pet owners to help so that the end is not that? (laughs) These rules are so flipping easy. So I just took you on a trail way down, but I wanted you to understand who your veterinarian is. They don't like to ask for help. They're really hard on themselves. They're perfectionists. They just want to help your pet. So rule number one, respect the hospital hours and every single person in the hospital. These people are not your paid help. They are professionals who are there to help your pet. So treat them like professionals, every single one of them. The receptionist is your conduit to the veterinarian or the person at the front desk. I say receptionist, that usually indicates female and sometimes it's not. But the person at the front desk is your conduit and they can be your best friend or your worst enemy. Treat them with respect, first of all, because just treat human beings with respect. Well, yeah, let's just start there. <laughs> There's no reason to disrespect anybody. You That's be, right. The book that I wrote, Happy Vet, Happy Pet, I gave veterinarians and vet techs a whole chapter of just tell me stories. So there's a whole chapter that's nothing but their stories. And you will be knocked out at how rude people can be and how dumb people can be. <laughs> like how rude, really. Going yeah. in and saying to a technician who is... Maybe, okay, so I'm 62 right now. And so a lot of people that I deal with at my veterinarian's hospital are not my contemporary in age. They're young enough to be my child. And that's perfectly fine. I don't care, but I don't, that does not give me permission 
to treat them like I might be their mother. You know, that hairstyle, darling, is really not very flattering. You should really think about putting your hair up or uh-huh. cutting it a little shorter because I think a bob would look better on the old <laughs> That was a really great Southern accent, by the way. <laughs> and people do that. People go yeah. into their vet and or they let their dog potty in the in the waiting room, you know, when we yeah. can finally get back into waiting rooms. People yeah. let their dog potty in the waiting room and make no move to clean it up like they think their mother works. No, that, these are professionals. Ugh. They're not there to clean up after your pet. That's right. Well, you know, I say a lot that I think everyone should have to work with the public at least once in their life for for a period of time. I think when you do that, whatever whatever job that might be or, or in whatever capacity that might be, I think it really gives you a sense of understanding how just shitty people can be. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you and know? that's the right and so word for it. That is right. Well, <laughs> yes. Uh, for me, I think that that's, that's perfectly said. For some people, they might use a different word and that's perfectly fine too. But I do think that because then you can hopefully have some self-reflection in understanding how that felt when you were on the other side of it. So don't do it to other people. Exactly. Uh, So that's so good. Okay. So then that brings us to rule number two. Well, let's go back to rule number one, just a little bit. Okay. Part of it, that was the respect the people. Part of it is respect the hospital hours too. So just because the hospital is open until seven o'clock in the evening does not mean that you can show up at 645 for a nail trim without Mm. anybody knowing you are coming. Oh, for sure. They're cleaning at Mm. that point. You know, if you've got something that could happen in a regular part of the day, make an appointment and show up. If it's an emergency and it's, you know, five minutes before your, your veterinarian closes, go to the emergency hospital. That's why God invented emergency hospitals. <laughs> They're there all night long. Don't make your vet stay. And if you happen to have your veterinarian's cell phone number or home phone number from something years ago where they said, you know, you can call me if you need me tonight. That doesn't mean you can always call them anytime you have a question. Right. Veterinarians need downtime just like the rest of us. They are That's not right. superheroes, even though we think they are. They are not. They've got to have a life of their own and we need to respect hospital hours. And if we've got ways of communicating with them, don't do that outside of hospital hours. Just don't. Don't. Yes. I like Unless that. they have said specifically, you can call me anytime you want, anytime, right. day or night, <laughs> in which case they have asked for it. Yes. So, <laughs> all okay, right, now like rule that. number two yes. is follow, follow the aftercare instructions to the letter. So if you're supposed to be giving a pill every four hours and you've done that rodeo twice and you've decided, well, my dog just, I can't pill my dog or I can't pill my cat. I'm not going to be able to do that. They're probably not that important. Mm-hmm. Your vet yeah. did not dispense those pills because just showing the pill bottle to your pet will make the right. pet better. That's right. not going to work. You yes. have to find a way to give the me- medication. And if you can't figure out how to give the medication, call the hospital and say, hey, can y'all help me with ideas? Because I just really, I mean, you know, Google, YouTube, there's there's a thousand ways to <laughs> figure out how to, how to sneak some medication in on yeah. your pet. That's I'm, right. I'm telling you, peanut butter works miracles. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You know, for some reason, little Sadie Mae like does not like peanut butter. So I have had to find different ways. But where there's a will, there is a way. And, and you it, have, yeah, you have to do the will. You yes. have to be strong. So you're the one who has to look at the aftercare instructions that your veterinarian gave you and follow them. 
So this is great. So as a pet owner, we can help with the happiness of our vets and really do our part in helping to reduce the stat of vet suicide. So just to kind of review the three, again, number one was respect the hours and everyone in the hospital. Number two was follow the aftercare instructions to the letter. And number three, and I, and I, I wrote down, send a thank you note, but it might've been different. Was that the specific of number three? Just show them appreciation now. Show them appreciation. Yeah. Just appreciate them. It's, it's wonderful to tell your friends that you have the very best veterinarian ever. That's right. You need to tell your veterinarian and you need to tell your vet's team emergency hospital that I went to, to uh, when Duffy was at the end, this is the very first time they're seeing me and they're seeing me to put my animal down. That sucks as a veterinary team. That sucks. They've never gotten a chance to see the animal at their best. They've never gotten a chance to get to know you. Hmm. All they're doing is taking you at your word. I mean, you know, it was clear with Duffy, but sometimes with other animals, it might not be so clear. They're taking you at your word that the animal needs to die and you have brought them there so that they can kill your animal for you. Mm -hmm. So when I went to pick up Duffy's cremains, I took a cake and a peace lily for them and thank you notes. Amazing. Um, Very simple tips that we can all apply. Yes. I love that. Remember that these are human beings and professionals who care about your pet and care about helping your pet. And so you just need to care about them just a little bit. Just remember that. I mean, as soon as we get off this podcast, I'm going to, I'm going to make some changes myself. So I love this. You know, you were, or maybe you currently still are, I'm not sure, a judge for championship dogs. Yes. And one of the things that you say is happy dogs win championships. And this is not really so much about how to make your dog happier. Our dogs are happy. They're naturally happy. Right. But there's a lot of things that we can apply as humans as well. And so I know you speak on this and I want to hear what are your tips and what do you mean by happy dogs win championships and how does that apply to humans? Well, when you watch a dog show, One of the things that you'll notice is that on a dog show on television or in person, most of the dogs in the ring are wagging their tail at some point. These are, these are, they're like happy. Here I am. I'm happy to be here. And you know why? It's because they're being, they're trained for it. They're conditioned for it. They're with their favorite person and dogs live in the now. Dogs are right here. We have this brain, it's, I, it's, I always, I love science fiction and I love science fiction that talks about trying to build the, t- the time machine so you can go back in time or forward in time. We have it right here. We do it all the time. We, we don't live now. We don't. Most of the time we allow our brain to go back in time and, and fret over things that have already happened and we have no power there mm-hmm. or worry about things that might happen in the future. And as soon as we start worrying about anything, we start flooding ourselves with the hormones that make it happen in our bodies, just exactly like that thing we're worrying about would happen in our bodies if it was really happening. Our brains can't tell the difference between we're thinking about something bad or we're actually experiencing something bad. Our brain's just like, oh, something bad? Flood. So, yes, so, so true. Stop the time traveling. Be right here, right now, right here, right now. So, if you have to think ahead five minutes every now and then, fine. But when you <laughs> find your brain ruminating over something that you wish had gone differently or you wish you had done differently, just remind yourself I learned from that. 
I don't need to keep thinking about that because while you're thinking about it, all those stress hormones are flooding through your body and that's not good for you. That's just, it's not. I mean, there's science, science proves that stress, the more stress hormones you have, the higher incidence of heart disease, chance for stroke, incidence of cancer, digestive issues, everything, high yeah. blood pressure, you name it. Our stress hormones wreak havoc in our bodies. So the more we can control this, the less of this we get. That's right. So control your thoughts as they control your emotions. Exactly. And our emotions control our actions. So it's kind yeah. of like this yep. big yeah. uh, snowball effect. Yeah. What else? What, so, so dogs live in the now. What else can we learn from, and really pets, but what, specifically we're talking about dogs. What else can we le- learn from dogs? What can we learn from dogs? Well, let's see. Shedding is good because it makes people not, <laughs> get a, not want to get too close to you. <laughs> no, 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 no. Keep your distance. I did mention I have Siberian Huskies, right? That's right. Talking about shedding, there's, uh, I'm I'm assuming you live with dog hair. (laughs) I do. I do. As a matter of fact, when I'm going to be speaking somewhere and I send the introduction that I would like them to use, the kicker at the end, and since she's owned by Siberian Huskies, don't be surprised to find a little dog hair on her clothes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. I'm good with it. I've had them for about 40 years, so no big deal. You, get, you kind of get used to it. I just think of it as excess love that they're Oh, leaving. there you go. Yeah. There you so go. The very best way to teach a dog anything is with positive reinforcement. So you ignore the behavior that you don't want and you reward the behavior that you do want. Guess what? That works exactly the same with people as it does with dogs. Let's see. If I want you to go back and play your keyboard... And I asked you, Amy, would you go back and play your keyboard for us? Would you please just play us a song? And you turn around and throw something on your easel and start painting us a picture. That's not exactly what I wanted, but I'm not going to tell you not to paint the picture. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to watch you paint the picture until you're done painting the picture. And then I'm going to admire your picture and say, now I bet you're just as good at that keyboard, aren't you? Would you please show me? Mm -hmm. And then when you you start (laughs) playing me a song, I'm just like, oh my God. That's you are amazing. You are so good. Right. And if you were a dog, I would stuff a cookie in your mouth. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so positive reinforcement. I think we could all learn that just in life with people yeah. that we're connected with, even ourselves, like giving yes. ourselves positive reinforcement. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so yeah. um, any other tips you have for us that connect that dogs do that maybe we could really learn from to increase our own happiness? You know, something popped into my head a moment ago. And and when I was talking about the positive reinforcement, I said, that and that, and that got away. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's all good because- Don't sweat uh, the small stuff, you know? It's okay. Chase a squirrel now and then. It's all right. (laughs) Yeah. I think one of the ones, just to kind of add to that list, I was kind of thinking through what I might say as well, just from a dog lover standpoint, but it's just that like love hard, like be loyal. I think that is like one of the greatest attributes of dogs is they love you no matter what. They're so loyal. They're always so happy to see you. You know, one of the things that my boyfriend has said before when I just like in conversation about, um, you know, what do you, what do you love about Amy or whatever? One of the things that he has said was that she's always so excited to see me. (laughs) Not that I'm a dog here, but, and I don't know that I consciously took that from dogs. However, what a great feeling, I think. Right. So every time you see someone that you love, like be excited, not just like, Oh, Hey, Oh, Hi, you know, like, oh, hey, right. Good to see you. How's your day? You know, like 
bring some excitement to it. And I think, you know, just love hard, be loyal. I love that. That's an excellent suggestion. It makes me think of whether you've been gone five minutes or five hours, you get yeah. the same greeting when you come in. That's They're right. Always excited to see you. So, and the, right. was it Mark Twain? I think it might have been Mark Twain, but I could be wrong about this. Said, and I'm going to get this wrong, but in our extreme moments of happiness, almost everyone has wished for a tail to wag. Uh, and I love that. <laughs> I do love that too. I love that. You know, I want to recognize you for a moment for all the great work that you do in this world. And although it sounds awesome to be in the industry of like speaking on happiness, because it is, it is. Uh, I, I just want to recognize you for a moment because I think a lot of people are great motivational, inspirational speakers who can certainly transform happiness within people. But you go the extra mile in understanding positive psychology, really knowing the science behind it, the neuroscience, neuroplasticity. And I think that that just brings a whole nother level to really understanding happiness and really being able to make that transformation in other people. So thank you for your work when it comes to that. I think that that is so, so important. And, and you think it's so important that you have done the same thing. So we're, we're walking down, like you've got one railroad <laughs> track, I've got the other railroad track and we're connected the whole way. That's uh, right. I like that. No parallel. And I, yeah. I just love that. I was reading your autobiographical book and I came across Sonia Lubomirsky and it's like, yes, she's got <laughs> it. She understands where the real research is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the science behind it because yeah. it just brings the I don't know, the how to, the why, you know, the why, the why it brings the why to yeah. the how to. So yeah, exactly. I just absolutely love that. Were you Go one ahead. of those kids too? You always wanted to know why? Don't just tell me what to do. Oh, I want to know why. That's interesting. I don't know if I was one of those children or not. I would have to ask my dad that question. Okay. Unfortunately, he probably won't even know. That's probably a question that my mom would know. She's no longer with us. Right. And it's those things that I, that I say a lot, like, ah, I wish my mom was still around because, and I love my dad. I publicly speak about how awesome both my parents are, but that is just not a question that like Lair would know. So I don't know. That's interesting. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll ask my brother. He might know. He might know. He might know. (laughs) How would you define happiness? Oh my gosh. Happiness is our, I believe happiness is our natural state. Ah, I like that. And I think that we tamp down our own happiness because of our, our, the negativity bias that's going on because of the cultural conditioning that we've had, you know, people tell us, oh, you're not enough. Our brains take in the negative things that people say about us. Even when it's constructive criticism, it all goes into the same little pocket over here in this side of the brain. And I'm making up this side of the brain, but just think of a metaphorical (laughs) pocket where all that bad stuff goes. And then every now and then it just, your brain just says, oh, remember, you're not smart enough. Oh, remember, you're not pretty enough. Oh, remember, you're a four eyes. Oh, remember, you know, you're not enough. You're not enough. Our brain loves to remind us of that. And when, when we let our brains do that incessantly, and you can stop that, and you should stop that. Don't let me shoot on you, though. Um, we can stop that. We, have the, we are the only one to have the power to make our own brain shut up. Those are not our voices. Those are voices we've heard telling us things that we internalized and took to be the truth because they were said by people in authority over us or people who we loved or appreciated for some reason. And they were probably doing the best they could do. So give them that benefit of the doubt. Don't vilify them and say, you did this to me. No, 
They might have said it one time. You're the one who's been saying it over and over again inside your head. So at some point, you got to stop and take responsibility for that. So make that stop. And if that's a problem, then the mental stop sign is a really good tool. As soon as you realize that your brain is making those kind of negative comments, stop and think about something else. And if you can't think about something else, then sing a song because you can't think negative thoughts about yourself while you're singing a song. That is great advice. Sing a song. (laughs) I like that advice. Oh, I'm I'm writing that one down. Uh, That one is great. I I love that advice. So happiness is our natural state. I I love that too. I think that that is a really powerful statement. So here's a, a question that I asked all the guests. If you had seven more days left to live, what would you do? Oh, set up the way that you set it up in your book. Because most people would take that and say, oh, well, I would go to Tahiti and then I'd, you know, charter a jet and go around the world. Well, the way you set it up in your book was your mother's reality uh, with seven days left to live and she was incapacitated. So if I had seven days left to live and, and, and a body that wasn't working, I would hope that the people that I love would want to come and see me so that I could tell them how much they've meant to me in my life. That's beautiful. And that was the second part of the question. So you jumped to the second part and, and, <laughs> that's I read seven days um, and that's, and thank you so much. That is like such a compliment to me. So thank you for, for book. reading the book, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, that's awesome. And I think when we go back and we started taking, uh, like having visitors sign in to a log just for our own knowledge to be able to send thank you cards and some other things and having that kind of documented because for a while, like there were so many people coming to visit her and I need to get the, the stat from my dad. Cause he knows it, but over her like eight months of being in the hospital and essentially dying, like hundreds and hundreds of people came to visit. And it's just, it didn't feel that way in the moment. It just felt like there was a lot of people, but it didn't feel like it was like to that extent. Right. And when it was all said and done. And we went back and we were just kind of looking at that and it was really quite amazing. So thank you for that. But thank you for sharing that too, because I do think that that's really important in life. And uh, if you are in kind of in a debilitated state, what a, what an amazing way to have honored somebody's life than to know that you were loved. Right. And I think that that's really important in the end, just like, (laughs) I want to say this, but just like pets, to just know that, that, that they're loved. And so anyway, thank you for that. Thank you so much for being on Unlocking Happiness. As we unlocked happiness today on so many different levels, I learned a ton from you. I can't wait because even just from this small conversation, you have changed my perspective on things and I'm going to change the way that I am a pet owner and how I treat my vet. Not that I ever treated him bad, but I do believe in all the things that you said. And so I'm going to change that. I know that the listeners here they're such easy tips that they're going to go and they're going to change. So you have essentially made a difference in this short interview. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for what you do for the world. Thank you for what you do for the vet industry, for pet owners. It is such an important message. I know people are going to want to connect with you. So where can they go to connect with you? They can go to my website, which is center for work. What well, I think you have to put the W's on there still we're, we're, we're working on getting rid of the W's, but I think you have to put them on there right now. Okay www.centerforworkplacehappiness.com or you can find me on Facebook or LinkedIn. I'm all over the place. So yeah. I'm pretty easy to find. And the book is even easier. Any place you go to get books. So it's Lo- happy. Oh, pet, love that happy cover. Pet. I love the little pet. 
<laughs> happy vet, happy pet. Yep. So happy you can vet, happy pet. It's everywhere. It's audiobook. It's an ebook. It's a regular book. It's, you know, it's a passion. It's a calling. It's a please. Can we help save veterinarians lives? And Amy, thank you so much for helping spread the word. I really appreciate you. Oh, and the work thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Happy vet, happy pet. Even if you're not a pet owner, folks, I want to tell you this is a great gift to give a pet owner because as I just said, in this short conversation, you've already blown my mind. I can't even imagine all the goodness that is in um, Happy Vet, Happy Pet. So it would make a great gift as well. Thank you so much for unlocking happiness with us today. Amy Dix here. Thank you so much for listening to Unlocking Happiness. I hope you loved the show. And if you did, post a link to your social media, tag a friend, and hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts. Help spread more happiness in the world by leaving us a review. If you would like to learn more about what we do, visit choose-happy.me. And if you want to be a future guest, click on the podcast tab to learn more. If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag unlocking happiness with Amy Dix. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and hit subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean the world to me and my team. Want to know more? Go to our website, choose-happy.me, or join our Facebook group called The Happiest Group on Facebook. Thanks for listening. This is Amy Dix, and we will see you next time.